Welcome to episode 34 of Girls on Pop. I am your co-host, Marine Antunes. And I am Ashley Lynch. Miss Ashley, where could folks find you? You can find me on the Twitterverse, at Ashley Lynch. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at The Marina. Welcome to part two of our return from summer break, where we talk about more movies and TV that we've been watching over the last, like, year that we've been away. Two Summer, Two Awesome. That's what this is. This is the sequel. I love it. Two Summer, Two Awesome. Oh, okay. This is the episode (laughs) of the show now. The sequel. I have named the episode title. You totally have. I better write it down, otherwise I'm going to forget. Um, <laughs> but we're just going to keep on talking about some of the stuff that we've been watching over the um, the sort of summer break, the last couple of weeks. Um, so we we finished last week on Prey, and we're just going to pick up pretty much where we left off and talk about some more movies. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Adam Sandler. <laughs> oh, God. I, I know. Why? why are you doing this to me? Well, this is so. This is why I'm doing this. I have never been a huge Adam Sandler fan. Um, I don't particularly like his type of comedy. Once in a while, one of the movies that he makes actually hits. I really, really like Little Nicky. I don't know why. I know it's not like a good movie, but it makes me laugh. (laughs) And I have a couple of comedies that are like that, that I know they're not good, but they really make me laugh. So I have like this soft spot for them. But... Then Adam Sandler goes and every once in a while he makes like a serious movie. And I say that in air quotes for people that can't see it. And he's, he's, he's actually not a bad actor. He just tends to make really shitty movies. So Punch Drunk Love clearly proved that he could act. And then mm-hmm. he made Uncut Gems, which is a bonafide fucking classic. That movie yeah. is so dope. But he was still making these shitty movies for Netflix. So he had this, he was one of the first actors to sign like an overall deal at Netflix. They gave him a shit ton of money to make, I don't even know, I think it was like 10 movies or something ridiculous. And so he'd been pumping out these really, really bad comedies like in line with the crap that he used to make like that he generally makes and then you know uncut gems happened and i guess he reevaluated his deal with netflix and he's like maybe i can actually make some good movies because fuck hustle is really a good movie i gotta tell you so this is the latest adam sandler movie on netflix um he plays a um a basketball um, scout uh, who's out. I think he works for the Clippers or something and he's, uh, he's always traveling. And so he's out trying to find like the next big thing. And he finds this guy who is on no one's radar in, I want to say it's in Spain. And so it's the story about this, you know, guy who has these amazing basketball skills. He's had a bit of a troubled life and Nobody in in the States knows who he is, and he basically makes good. And along the way, it's also the story about Adam Sandler, who is this guy that's been long taken advantage of, who wants to move out of scouting and into, like, coaching. And so it's these two stories that sort of converge and blah, blah, blah. And it's really good. Adam Sandler is really good in it. The guy that plays the basketball star is fucking amazing. Never seen him in anything before in my life. Holy shit, this guy should be in all the movies. Um, And I really liked it. And I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It is a really solid drama. Two thumbs up for Marina. So Adam Sandler hits again. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. I promise. 
I, I might watch this. The only thing I have that's really kind of blocking me, and it's not Adam Sandler, is that I hate sports. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is the, really hard to get me to watch a sports anything. It, it, I mean, there is clearly there's basketball. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to like ignore that because <laughs> there is a big chunk of basketball. And I mean, I understand that Adam Sandler is a big sports fan. So, I'm not surprised, but. I, I don't know what to say because there is a lot of sports. I can't say there isn't really a lot of sports here because there is. <laughs> There's a little a lot of basketball playing happening here on screen, but it's still mostly a drama about these two men whose uh, various careers become intertwined and whose lives become intertwined and who m- both make good. It's really, really well made and it's really great and the performances are wonderful. So I say thumbs up. It's All a good right. one. Well, maybe I'll give it a shot. Hustle on the Netflix. I'm, now I'm curious. The fact that it's a movie and not a series makes me more likely to give it a shot. Yeah, definitely a movie. Then it's like the commitment is like two hours. It's not like, oh, and here's eight episodes you have to watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they, them, what is this? I haven't actually heard of this. Yeah, they, them is a smaller uh, Blumhouse or um came out on peacock the the cack um which is it's basically a slasher film centered around a uh gay conversion camp essentially so the the setup is rife with opportunity because the idea of taking a gay conversion camp and saying, now let's make a horror movie about that. It's like, okay, you got your social commentary built in. I haven't seen that before. A lot of opportunity here. Um, and the camp is led by Kevin Bacon. So the unfortunate thing is the entire movie feels like it is not for queer people, but it's instead for a bunch of cis straight liberal allies who want to feel good about their allyship. And as a result, it ends up having some really kind of shitty mixed messaging in it that doesn't work. Um, There's some performances that are good. There's some ideas that are good. A lot of it is half-baked. A lot of it, I have to assume, comes from a place that's, like, pure of heart, but just kind of, like, misintentioned. Um, Ultimately, the movie ends up being a mess. It's neither scary nor that interesting. In some places, depending on... Um, where you sit on the queer spectrum, it will be outright offensive. Not 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 so much offensive; it will be infuriating um, rather than offensive. It actually, I think it goes it goes out of its way to try to not be offensive. Um, at the same time, you're saying they're wondering who it's for because you're watching basically a gay conversion camp emotionally torture a bunch of kids that are forced to be there, which if you're queer, is just going to make you really pissed off, which is exactly what it should be doing is pissing you off at the same time. There's nothing that really kind of like, you know, turns that around in a really kind of cathartic way. So it's uh there's a version of this movie that could be cool, but this movie is not it. 
Oh, that's yeah. too bad. I really like Kevin Bacon. He's not in enough stuff anymore. So that excited me for like a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's disappointing. Um, I wish this were a more interesting or better movie, but honestly, you can just you can skip this one. Um last week you'd mentioned the princess, which kind of felt like this Fox property that got relegated to Hulu because Disney didn't know what it wanted to do with it. I and think we also no- talked about Prey, which was the exact same thing. Yeah, and I think Not Okay falls into that camp as well. So this is um, a Quinn Shepard's. I think it might be her directorial debut. She's an actress turned director. It stars Zoe Dutch and Dylan O'Brien. Zoe Dutch plays this. Um, she's a photo editor working at a like an online like entertainment magazine. Um, and she wants to be a writer, but she doesn't really know how to break in. Um, so she comes up with this grand scheme to pretend to go to Paris uh, for a writing retreat. Uh, and the week that she's home pretending to be in Paris for a writer's retreat, she's a photo editor. She's so she's basically like, um, uh, faking all of her Paris pictures and posting randomly to Instagram and getting a lot of follows in the meantime. While she's doing that, there is a bombing at the Paris Metro that she was apparently at, like like in her Instagram feed, she was there just like two hours before. Mm-hmm. So now she is embroiled in this thing where everybody thinks, including her parents, that she's in Paris Uh and she has been caught in the middle of this bomb attack. And so she comes back and is like instantly kind of semi-famous. Um, and she takes advantage of the opportunity to kind of uh, write herself up as this survivor. And things begin, begin to unravel very, very quickly. It's like this quick rise to uh, like online fame and then the throngs of what happens when she is found out. Mm-hmm. It's very good. It ha- it's, I mean, I thought it was very smart. Um, it's clearly, clearly catches like the current social media obsession and the downfalls and pitfalls of it. Uh, Zoe Dutch is really, really watchable. I, I'm not sure why she's not a bigger star because she clearly has the chops for it. I, I wonder, I can't help but wonder that maybe it's her choice in movies. She, every, pretty much everything that she's in is something that's of interest to me. She seems to have her finger on up and coming directors, interesting stories, and she seems much less interested in being in like the next blockbuster, which I think is really fascinating fascinating and i really like this movie and i don't think enough people are talking about it and the opening intro is very tongue-in-cheek i did get a message from bill uh over at the green screen of death who's like i don't know if the opening to this movie is tongue-in-cheek or if they're just totally out of touch and this was before he watched the movie so i have a feeling that he's since come around from that but uh, not okay very very good not enough people talking about it. I have got this one on my watch list, but I have not got around to it yet. So, but I have heard a lot of people raving about it. So I'm, I'm eager to check this one out. 
Excellent. I'm glad to hear. I'm, I'm clearly not plugged into the movie sphere at the moment because I haven't heard about anybody talking about anything. So what do I know? <laughs> it's mostly the people that are on the periphery that are going to like pick out the more like art house films and like that are yeah. singing this one's praises. It's not like, you know, I'm widely seeing everyone talking about this movie. No, like you mostly, it's like people are not talking about this movie, but I have heard, oh, great. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the right people have been saying you need to see this movie. So, Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's a good one. I highly recommend that. I was really impressed by it. Um, 13 Lives. Now, I haven't seen this. It is on my watch list. And every time I go to start it, I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like watching this at the moment. So <laughs> tell me, is the new Ron Howard movie worth watching? I was bizarrely eager to watch this movie. Um, and the only explanation I've got for why is because it's just like, here's a standard, like, oh, here's a real life sort of event of, you know, human tragedy and heroism that happened. Now let's do a dramatized, you know, big movie about it, directed by Ron Howard. And it's the fact that I feel like we don't really get much of that kind of movie anymore. That when one came out, even though it isn't something I'm like hugely fascinated about. I did not follow the story when it was happening live, really, other than the fact that it existed. Um, it was, uh, I was, I was so eager to hop on this movie. It's like, Oh, I miss this kind of movie. And, and so I, you know, jumped right into it and it's like almost uncharacteristically. So, uh, the movie itself is fine. It's good. Um, it's, I have no real complaints about the movie. Um, I learned a lot of stuff about the actual event that I didn't know a few times where I'm like, oh, shit, this is like so much more intense than I even thought this would be because um, I did, didn't know a lot of the details, which if you're like me and you didn't pay attention to it as a news item other than that it happened, um, I won't spoil it except to say that it was like infinitely more harrowing then I felt like the news reports, you know, really kind of like indicated to me. Um, I understand why it was kind of like such a big story at the time now. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's just like, it's a really good human interest story. And, you know, in a way it's kind of like an adventure story too. The fact that like the, as a bunch of guys basically did the impossible to, you know, save the lives of these kids. And, you know, I suppose the only thing that's a spoiler is like for real life is that I think everyone knows at this point that all the kids made it out and lived. So you kind of know where to leading, but the how they did it was truly kind of astonishing. And I think it was, um, I think it's a really interesting story. It's great. Um, one of my biggest takeaways while I was watching is like, holy shit, Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell are looking old now. It's like, I'm not ready for this. It's making me feel old. Viggo Mortensen's an old man. How did this happen? When no, I saw not the- my Aragorn. This is that. That is so funny you say that because when I watched the trailer, that was the first thing that walked that crossed my mind was, wow, we're all getting yeah. so old. I know, I know. But no, I really dug this movie. I think it's worth watching. Uh, the one thing that this movie didn't touch on, and I think it's almost good that they didn't touch on it, because it would just be like a huge distraction, and that's what it was in real life, too, was the fact uh, that 
Elon Musk said he was going to build a submarine that was going to go in and get the boys out. And when one of the divers told him, no, this, you have no idea what you're talking about, mate. This isn't going to work. The sub can't get in there. It's like, it's too tight. And, and then Elon Musk just calls him a pedophile in the news. Oh, and I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that wasn't in there because Elon Musk does not need more, more press. But that was one of the things on my mind because that was like one of the kind of like more tabloidistic stupid stories to come out of this whole thing was the whole pissy match Elon Musk got in with the people that are actually risking their lives to get these boys out uh, because he wanted some of that fame. And when you watch what they had to do in the film to get these boys out, it really cements what a stupid fucking idiot Elon Musk is that he thought his dumbass submarine idea would work. Because it very clearly had no shot in hell of ever even coming close of getting through those caverns. I, I will say I'll, I'll add this uh, for those that have missed it. Um, last year, um, the team behind Free Solo, uh, Jimmy Chin and uh, his wife Elizabeth Versaheli, did a documentary for National Geographic called The Rescue, which actually captures they were on the ground as this was unfolding and the way they um, the documentary is part documentary footage of the events as they were happening. And some of it is reconstruction of the rescuers that was shot in basically these giant tanks in the dark. The fact that they managed to get like footage that actually looks like the divers were in the caves. It's kind of amazing. Um, It is a national geographic documentary. So it's available on Disney plus if you have that. Um, So I highly recommend it. The rescue. I need to watch that then. It's really, really good. And it is, I I don't recommend it if you're claustrophobic at all, because there are moments in that documentary, which are just like, they're harrowing to watch, but it's it's a really solid documentary. I highly, highly, highly recommend. Yeah, it's it. one of those things where I'm I'm also going off of a certain amount of assumption uh, that this Ron Howard movie, Thirteen Lives, is like trying to be as authentic as possible. Like I'm I'm fairly certain that the caves that they're swimming through were probably constructed for the film, um, so that they could film in them. But at the same time, I'm assuming it's replicating with a significant amount of accuracy what it was like to move through those caverns. And until you actually see it, it's hard to really fathom just how much of an impossible task it was. Not just to swim through it, period, but to get people out and how they get the kids out. Yeah. It's absolutely astonished because I did not know that detail. Yeah. And it's, that is, that is freaking wild in and of itself. And it's, it, it kind of on dramatic level, it hits that perfect intersection of, um, of, of heroism, ingenuity, an absolute fucking desperation in hopes that this works. Yeah. And if not, there wasn't a plan B. So, you know, it's, 
I thought it, I think the story itself is quite astonishing and the film just kind of like Ron Howard's film very much just seems to want to take like a backseat to how interesting that story is and just tell you that story. And so I dug it. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, so I would recommend watching The Rescue after seeing I'm definitely gonna watch 13 that. Lives. Um, and at this point, pretty much if Jimmy Chin has his name on it, I'm watching it. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, matter what I, it is. I, He's you know, kind of a I'm, genius. I'm kind of with you there, too, because when I finally saw Free Solo, it's like it's, it's kind of an astonishing film. It's like you hold your breath watching yes, that movie. It's just... It's a, it's kind of like for me, that's the elevation of the X Games is Jimmy yeah. Chin. Like all of the shit that I've been watching for a decade where, you know, people are catching these amazing feats in like the shittiest video it started with VHS and now we're up to like 4K high definition video. And these guys are just like, and, and women, I shouldn't discount that. His wife is just as equally a part of the filmmaking team. It just, I, they they've kind of like they are the epitome for me, and I just I've already I already love this stuff, so this just is icing on the cake. So yeah, the rescue. Okay, I'll move on, but yes, see it. <laughs> okay. Um, I saw a really little movie the other day. It, it came sort of recommended by somebody who said, "Oh, you like these one room thrillers? You might really enjoy the Immaculate Room," and. I kind of did and I kind of didn't. So um, this is this stars Emil Hirsch and Kate Bosworth as this couple that is selected to be uh, in this room for 50 days. If they manage to stay in the room for the 50 days, they get $5 million. If one of them leaves, the other person gets a million dollars. That's kind of like the basic set up and you get this right. Like the movie literally opens with them walking into the room and it's this white space that literally has a bed in it and a separate room for a bathroom. And there's this computer voice and this wall mounted thing that kind of like gives them the guide for what's going to happen through the day. And that sometimes gives them instructions. So we find out that only one person can be in the bathroom at the same time. Which is stupid because at some point halfway through the movie, that rule stops applying. <laughs> and there's like a little, a lot of like little inconsistencies like that that feel like they just didn't have enough people kind of like they didn't do a second re- read through the script clearly and yeah. nobody kind of picked up on some of this stuff. But the like general. When you, have a, when you have a minimalistic story and you set these rules, you like. Your you audience really is have- going to track those rules. Exactly. Especially when, you know, you've laid them out very clearly like, right at the beginning and very little happens for the race, like the other 90 minutes of your movie, other than these two people interacting uh, with these rules, always remembering these rules. So when you break one, it's like, well, what happened here? But um, on, on the one hand, I really, I do love a one room drama. I love movies mm-hmm. like this where you have two people in a room just like talking and shit is clearly going to go wrong because we're only human and that's just the way things go, generally speaking. Um, this one is not the best of them, but it's also not the worst of them. Emil Hirsch plays this kind of somewhat unhinged rich boy artist who has a lot of family issues, but is, like always 
Kate Bosworth clearly like makes it a point to mention that you always have a fallback plan. You can always go home to your family. We're not all that lucky. She clearly has had a much different life. And then you start to wonder how these two people ever end up together because they are so different. So it is kind of like this observation of uh, uh, a relationship falling apart over the course of nearly 50 days. I, I liked it. I, I didn't love it. I think like it has a couple of inconsistencies that are a little too um, obvious. And some of it is a little bit on the nose, but the performances are really good. And it's been a long time since I've seen Kate Bosworth kind of leading in any sort of leading performance. And she's really good. I don't think she gets enough opportunity to do like sort of heftier stories. And they're both quite good here. They, they, they play off of each other quite well. So I say it's a, it's pretty good. I don't know if I can fully say, yeah, I see it, but if it's a vague interest, I think it does have some interesting points and it's worth taking a look at for sure. Okay. The real question is, do you think you could spend a, was it 50 days alone in a white room? Uh, with Dan? Yeah, I think we'd be okay. Yeah. I think so. We, we survived a week literally locked in a, in a house together and we didn't even have one argument. So <laughs> I think the I, ultimate COVID movie. <laughs> Well, you know, it might be actually, I don't know. I don't know. But I I think, I mean, I don't know, right? Because it started, these guys start off well enough. And by the time Mm -hmm. you get to like day 30, things change, right? I mean, you spend enough time with people and you start to even imagine things that are not really there. So it, it, it is an interesting sort of psychological project. And it's not the first time that it's been done. But and like I say, probably not the best, but it's a good one. I, I did enjoy it. I did actually enjoy it. So that's the Immaculate Room. And that's one of those IFC direct-to-video releases. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been putting out some really interesting stuff the last couple of years. So this was one that I really enjoyed. Okay. Um, the Wretched, which off the top, I couldn't even remember if I'd heard about this. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention this movie real briefly. So I started doing the every, – every year there is the um, – the hundred days of horror challenge, mm-hmm. which some people participate in, which is basically a, to watch a hundred horror movies in 92 days, 92, because it starts at the beginning of August and ends on Halloween. Um, so you have to, you know, cram a couple, two movies a day, but other than that one movie a day will get you there. Um, so I've been doing that and I'm currently at some like 38 movies. So I'm trucking along just fine. One of the ones I watched was the wretched, which is a movie I'd heard about, just hadn't gotten around to seeing. And this was a movie that, like, if, if I recall correctly, it released, like, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I want to say, and then, like, ended up going into, um, into like, drive-ins it was mostly playing at and was actually fairly successful there. Um, don't quote me on this 100%, but I believe that was, like, the... I believe that was the, uh, the journey that this film take took. Um, but I was blown away by this movie. I thought it was really good. It's basically just a monster next door type of film where, um, there is this, uh, teenage boy goes to stay with his dad for the summer. He's clearly been in some, some trouble. He's got his arm in a cast and whatnot. And he's, you know, 
dealing with that, dealing with parents separated, dealing with like, you know, being a strange place for summer. And then all of a sudden the, uh, hip mom next door essentially becomes like infected with a witch that is like taken over her body and is now causing problems. And he sort of like inserts himself into, into the middle of the situation. So it's like fright night or something like that, where it's like, you know, the, the creature that lives next door and the, the, the kid, the teenage kid that's determined to like stop them sort of thing. Um, and it was like, it's a really small budget film uh, directed by two brothers, but I was amazed at how slick it looked um, how tightly it was written, how well the performances were in the movie. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, like considering they made this movie for, I think a million dollars, this is a grand slam of a movie. I was, I was super impressed. I, I, was can't, just, I can't wait to see what these guys do next. I was just looking. Cause I'm like, you know, why does this sound vaguely familiar? Have I seen this? I haven't for the record, but I think at some point I did see the trailer and I put it on my watch list. Cause it is on my watch list, but I just hadn't gotten around to it. So I may just have to move this one up as well. Cause, uh, that sounds really interesting. And I, the little clip I saw of the trailer looks really good. Yeah. It's, it's it's one of those ones where it's like you look at the cover, it could be look like any number of generic direct-to-video like horror movies, but this one's definitely worth worth checking out because I I absolutely adored it. I thought it was great. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit, very much in passing, about Spin Me Round. So this is the new movie from uh, Jeff Bayana. He did uh, Life After Beth and The Little Hours. He works a lot with um, Alison Brie and Aubrey Plaza. So this new film is co-written with Alison Brie, who also co-stars. And Aubrey Plaza also stars, along with Molly Shannon and Zach Woods and uh, Alessandro Nivola, who I really like. And he was really the key seller for me to watch this movie. So Alison Brie stars as this woman who is the manager at this like Italian chain restaurant. And she is selected to participate in this uh, special thing where they send managers from various uh, locations. They select a group of them and they send them to Italy to meet like the founder of the of the the chain and to spend like a week learning about Italian cooking or whatever else. It's like a week getaway, like in this amazing villa, everything paid for, blah, blah, blah. So Alison Brie is selected and she gets very excited. She's never even been out of the US, so all of a sudden she's leaving to Europe for a week. And Turns out that the, the the founder of the restaurant is Alessandro Nivola, who is clearly very good looking, and everybody loves him. So you know she is destined to meet this guy, and you think you you think you know where this story is going, except you land in Italy and nothing is what it's supposed to be, and then you remember that this is from Jeff Bayana and nothing he makes is ever what it's supposed to be. And it's going to get twisty and fucked up pretty quickly, and it totally does. But it's it's you never quite know where it's going. So I, I'm not sure how I feel about this movie. On the one hand, I really enjoyed it because I really like um, Alison Brie and she's quite good here. She always has this kind of like deer in headlights look where she looks like this innocent woman that doesn't really know what the hell is going on, but you know that she knows more than she's letting on. It's just... It's this, I don't know, I don't even really know how to describe it. It's just this very unassuming little drama that 
moves at a very specific slow pace and nothing ever really happens, but there's always shit happening. Like, I don't really know how to explain it beyond that. Like, it's just this movie that happens and then it's over. And like the climax is so anticlimactic that it happens and then it cuts to the aftermath and you're like, okay, that was weird. (laughs) But it kind of like, that feels like all of Jeff's movies. So I guess to say that if you like Jeff Banda's movies, you're probably going to enjoy this one. If you're going to like his movies, you're probably not going to enjoy this one. If you've never seen any of his movies, this one might not be the one to start with. I'd maybe start with Life After Beth, which I think is way more accessible. But this was, I thought was really funny in this very sort of like low-key, weird, weird-ass way. And uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. It's you just- know, I watched the trailer for this movie and even after finishing the trailer, I still had a hard time putting my finger on what this movie even was. Yeah. It's very uh, strange. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a great thing when you, when the, they try to sell the movie to you and you're like, I don't know what that is. You know, it's like, maybe that's a problem. I don't know. Or maybe that's part of the allure. I think, I think for the comedy, I think was where I kind of like landed. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, and it is, it does, it is comedic, but not in the ha 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 laugh out loud sort of comedy. It's more like a, I don't even know. It, it's this very wannabe highbrow comedy, you know. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's supposed to. I guess it's supposed to be for like very smart people. Like that's kind of the feeling that I get. Like it's this okay. movie at, that's supposed to be like hitting the sort of like the yuppie New York types. Like, that's who I envision as the... Something like the squid and the whale. Yeah, kind of like there, but nowhere near that level. But that type of comedy. Okay, gotcha. Where it's funny, but not, like, funny for everybody. Like, I don't I don't even know if I'm make, doing it any favors at this point. <laughs> I just, I don't really know what else to say about it. It's this, just kind of this weird movie that happens. And then when it's over, you're like, well, that was weird. But it was always kind of, also kind of fun and enjoyable. So mm. that's kind of where I landed on it. It is like this little weird tale that has these very bizarre moments and also some, like, really laugh out loud moments. <laughs> But no, definitely not for everyone. Definitely not for everyone. Okay. Um, unlike Day Shift, which I don't still don't think is for everyone, but certainly has laughs that are more accessible. It, it's probably definitely a more mainstream movie in that sense. But yeah, Day Shift is the uh, the new Netflix movie with uh, Jamie Foxx, where he's basically. Um, Vampire hunter who wants to get back into the vampire hunters union because he needs to make some quick cash and is basically stuck on the day shift where he hunts vampires. Um, it's all it's all done in the tone of being primarily an action film first and a horror film second. So it's all very kind of like John Wick close quarters gunfight type of action. You will see a lot of this one gag that they do where a vampire will come leaping through the air at Jamie Foxx as he 
hits the he fires a shotgun at them and they fly hard in the opposite direction having been blasted in the face with a shotgun and the stunt work is really good the film directed by jj perry who himself is a uh is a stunt performer and is sort of like it's very like i said john wick things like that another movie made by stunt performers where it is very much that kind of action centric type of we know how to do stunts better than anyone else and that's the type of movie we're going to make it's very inconsequential very goofy very um it's it's fun the only complaint i really had is that all of the action at a certain point started to feel really samey it didn't didn't really get like creative or ramp it up at any point it's just like here's another fight where they're gonna do a lot of the same kind of cool stuff that they've been doing before but and it looks great it's fun but i've seen this already so yeah that, that was my only real complaint i i'm with you i think halfway through the movie i was kind of like oh this is already getting repetitive and we still have like 45 minutes left um which is not the feeling that you want when you're watching a movie but that's no. certainly the feeling that i got um I will say I really like the world building here. It, I, I like the the kind of uh, it, it is actually now that you mentioned it, it is very John Wicky and that there's like this society, like the the union of vampire hunters that has like all of these rules that you ha- have to abide by. So mm-hmm. that does feel like very much like ripped directly from John Wick's Wick and, and movies of that ilk. But I did kind of like. I liked that, and I liked the whole measuring of the years by with the fangs. Like there were a couple of things that were felt kind of like fresh and new in the whole like vampire genre, which I thought was really fun. But overall, I found it just kind of like a bit bland. It loses yeah. its shine like a good part way through. But I did like some of the comedy, and I really liked Dave Franco in it. I think he's really funny. Um, I, we enjoyed it, but it's not something that I was like, oh, yeah, you need to watch this. Yeah. I think one of the most frustrating things is like, for me anyways, is that you have um, all of these fights that are happening with vampires. They're all happening during the day because the movie's called Day Shift. And so you end up in these like, you know, sort of like, you know, Darkly illuminated homes because they're, you know, vampire houses and whatnot. But you can see, like, right through the window, the daylight peeking through the blind sort of thing. And it's like, why are you fighting with these vampires? Just open the fucking blinds. (laughs) And they never do because they're there to have, like, cool action fight scenes. But the windows of daylight are right there and it... I know how horror movies work. You're supposed to go for the fucking daylight. It's, it's, I found that I found that very frustrating. It it kind of irritated me. Um, yes, and it felt like this artifice that was like there because that wasn't the type of film that they wanted to make. So please don't notice that it's daylight. But also, it's, that's kind of central to our story. <laughs> it it annoyed me. Yeah. Uh, nope. <laughs> Uh, as as Dan is now a fan of saying, um, nope. So let's talk about nope, because oh my god, this movie. Okay, so I'm not quite sure. We just saw this like 
maybe three or four days ago. And we're already thinking about rewatching it because we had this argument yesterday about Mm -hmm. the meaning of the movie. And I'm like, I don't Mm -hmm. really want to have this argument with anybody anymore because I'm beyond having arguments about the life meaning of movies with people. (laughs) I'm just too old for this shit. I just want to enjoy it. But holy shit, I think I need to watch this movie a second time because I clearly missed stuff that I maybe should have picked up on and I'm not quite sure how I missed it. But needless to say, uh, Jordan Peele has really outdone himself with this one. Yeah, I, I, so I have seen this twice. I saw this in the theater uh, opening weekend, and then I just watched it again recently, a couple days ago. Now that's uh, that's on digital, um, so I think it definitely does reward for repeat viewing once you sort of like know what the film is doing and you can sort of like track into like what it's actually trying to say, because it's, it actually is trying to say a lot um, and not what you're expecting is trying to say. When I saw it in the theater, I came away saying, you know, that was really fun. And I think on a technical level, this is probably Jordan Peele's best movie, but it's not as like important as get out or us i think but the longer i sat with it and the more i realized what it was actually saying and especially upon repeat viewings i think it's probably his best film um and the of course on the surface the film is basically just about you know a small small farm of horse ranchers that train horses for for a film um suddenly discovering that they have an alien ship that is slash creature that is basically like hovering over their farm and they are determined to get a shot of this thing so that they can you know pull themselves out of debt with the great money shot of aliens um and it it just it escalates from there and it is a incredibly entertaining film um it is told in such an interesting way and ultimately ends up being this great commentary on the destructive nature of spectacle. Um, because that's what the alien becomes. That's what their entire lives have sort of become as horse trainers for the theater. That's what the adjacent um, Western theme park ranch essentially is. And the, the, adjacent story to that theme park where the owner of it was a child actor where a uh, a performing chimp basically went nuts and murdered people on set and it's it's all throughout this film uh basically laced with how we view spectacle and place importance upon it and how that essentially will destroy us, which I found eminently fascinating. Once you kind of unlock that and you see it's laced all throughout the film everywhere, I think it's a truly interesting and fascinating film, unlike anything else I've ever seen. Yeah. And and the only other thing I'll say is that Jordan Peele understands intuitively that the only thing we as an audience want is to listen to Michael Wincott say words no matter what it is because that man's voice is amazing (laughs) i could totally go with that i i 
it's interesting because I didn't like us. I mean, I could appreciate what he was trying to say, but the movie I didn't didn't work for me. I, I something mm-hmm. about it just rubbed me the wrong way. I still think Get Out is probably my favorite, though this I think is clearly a much more. Um, it's not the word isn't adult it's sophisticated this mm-hmm. is a much much more sophisticated movie in every way in theme in storytelling in visual prowess in uh cinematography like everything about this movie is like ramped up by the power of a hundred from his previous two films and it's amazing that he's made that leap from get out to this in literally three movies like it's shocking like uh, like other filmmakers would take decades to get to this level of storytelling and he's just done it so seamlessly and the fact that it's so successful he's so successful at it is just another thing one of the other things i really appreciate about him is he has this and i think that this comes like second nature from the fact that he's a black man making movies that are also horror movies. And he has this cultural understanding of how black people interpret the films differently than, you know, the, basically the people that make them like, there's Mm -hmm. this, there's this joke where, you know, the white people are like, Oh my God, it's the killer. And they don't, they just stand there. And the black people are like, no, get the fuck out. You don't go in there because the killer is fucking in there. I'm leaving. And Mm -hmm. there's this, I, I kind of see that in everything that he does because none of it is obvious, right? Like, you know that he knows that and you're like, okay, so he's not going to do the thing that I'm expecting. He's going to do that other thing. And I don't know what that other thing is. Yeah. And, and, and so ev- with every shot, I'm like, okay, so what, what's coming next? Because I don't actually know what's coming next. I think I, I might think I know, but I don't actually know how Jordan Peele thinks. So I think that there's also like this meta level to his filmmaking that really helps his storytelling, which is just subconscious. But yeah, there's the multiple levels in which this movie work are just out of this world. And I will say that this is most, I did not expect to go into this movie seeing the most interesting alien design I have probably ever seen in my entire life. Never in my mind did I think I'm going to see the coolest alien ever in this movie. And then you see it the first time and you're like, Oh, okay. And then it shifts as the movie shifts and you're like, Holy fuck, this just happened. So of course the next thing I did was for three days, I've been doing nothing but reading about the VFX of the making of the movie. Cause I just want to know all of it. Because it's so interesting. Yeah, works on so many levels. I love this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, like, particularly the design of the alien, because, like, it how it how it presents itself evolves over the course of the film, and it yes. evolves until you get to, like, the end of the film, where it, it really kind of presents, I guess, like, its final form, if it even has a final form. But there's, like, it at a certain point, it just starts to resemble something that like it looks like it could only be inspired by like sea life that has never seen daylight kind of thing where it's like it's it's almost like parachuting up and then has like the like tendrils that are reaching out in different shapes and looks almost like jellyfish like and it's uh 
I don't know. It's, it's from a design perspective. I've truly, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm always kind of amazed. Like I was remarking this the other day about Sputnik as well. Um, the, the Russian alien movie where it feels like every combination of design for an alien, essentially, it feels like we've seen that on screen for what we would recognize as being like an alien creature. And yet, every once in a while, some film comes along and reminds you that there is still truly original creative design work to be had in films. And it's exciting when you can see that. Yeah, I agree 110%. And, you know, as you were talking about, you know, the 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 themes in the movie and how it really is uh, a, a look at how, like, performance, and it almost feels like those final scenes with the alien – tied perfectly into this concept of performance, right? Because now you, you're seeing it in a way that you haven't seen it before. And it's, it's almost like it is performing mm-hmm. for it, it's its performing victims. performing for the audience. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's it's crazy how that sort of comes full circle. But yeah, this movie is so far probably one of my favorite of the year. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I can't wait to, to to see it again, and I can't wait to see all like the making ofs because I want to see. Like, all I of even want to watch it again, just study it further. But I almost I I feel like I'm almost at a point where I could like give a TED talk about like the meaning of this <laughs> film. I think it is so fascinating. I think it's a lot more fascinating than a lot of people even recognize or give me credit for. I, I, I fully think agree. At some point, like when the actual like blu-ray hits because it's just on digital now but i hope there's like a commentary track agreed by jordan peele because i'd love to hear him like talk more about this movie and i hope he goes really in depth i agree and i mean i will say this like dan is not the type of person to really get into like the nitty-gritty thematics of a movie he either like really likes something or really doesn't like something and a lot of the time it's just for purely entertainment value and his take was the first half is really amazing when it's like this kind of jaws movie where you know that the threat is out there but you never really see it you only get glimpses of it he wasn't as thrilled by the second half once you actually know what it is and what it looks like Mm -hmm. and then he thought the ending was really great because it's so unexpected so his his take was it's a winner and how many times do you ever get to see a horror movie about aliens that concludes with an akira power slide on a motorcycle never never (laughs) until now yeah exactly greatest movie ever I love it. I love it. Uh, so yeah, nope. Now on digital. See it, people. See it. You don't know you want it. Trust us, you want it. Um, we'll, we'll move to a little bit of some TV talk. We have a couple of shows that we've been watching that we wanted to talk about. And I, I thought I'd start with um, Blackbird. I uh, I have this bad habit. I subscribe to certain uh uh, streaming services that every once in a while, like I forget I have them. Shutter is the other one I do this with. Like I won't watch anything on Shutter or Apple TV for months. And then I'll ran- randomly log in one day and it's like, Oh my God, there's all this stuff I want to watch. <laughs> so uh, the other day, well, when we had COVID, we, uh, we, we thought, okay, we'll finally catch up with a bunch of stuff that we had started watching and never quite finished. So we watched a couple of shows. And then uh, once we kind of powered through all the stuff we'd watched, we thought, okay, well, let's watch some new stuff. So we watched Blackbird, which is like, a, I think it's six episodes, or maybe it's five. It's a limited series on Apple TV+. Plus. It's um, created and showrun, developed by Dennis Lehane. 
Levine, who is like the famous author that writes these like really depressing stories and mysteries about the human condition. He's adapted this biography based on the life of James Keene, who was um, a very uh, a football player whose career was cut short. And then he turned to dealing drugs to make money. And then he got himself involved uh, in some bad shit got caught and thrown into prison for something like 10 years. And then when he was like partway through his sentence, uh, he was given the opportunity to go into a maximum security prison uh, to befriend a guy who the powers that be thought was a serial killer to try to get him to one, admit to the other murders and to find out where the bodies are buried. And the reason they had asked James to kind of like do this was because he's a really good liar and he's really good at reading people. So the, the movie, the, 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 the mini series is basically like the story of this guy who, agrees to go into this prison to basically befriend and get this information from this crazy dude, but except the crazy dude is in a maximum security prison for crazy people and he's not crazy. So there's like all this other shit that you need to deal with. And uh, so Taron Edgerton stars. uh, He's very, very good. Uh, Paul uh, Walter Hauser plays um, Larry Hall, who is the supposed murderer. Um, And it also stars Ray Liotta in one of his last roles. It's a really solid, very dark, very sort of fucking depressing as shit prison drama that is also really, really well done. And, there's a reason Taron Edgerton is a star because he's very good and he's endlessly compelling to watch. Um, it's very, very good. Very, very good. I highly recommend it. I really, really like this series. This one's been on my list. I just haven't gotten to it yet. And I think the selling point for me that really made me want to watch it was the fact that it is like one of Ray Liotta's last performances. I think the show started airing like right after he died. And so I was like, oh, crap, there's like another Ray Liotta thing here we can watch. So it's it's on my list to watch, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, it's a good one. And I mean, Ray Liotta plays a fairly small role. He's a, very much a side character. He plays uh, Taron Edgerton's father. Um, and I, I was trying to figure out if he was sick when he made the series or, I mean, if like, because the the father is sick in the show anyways, but uh, it's kind of sad to see that after his passing, especially so close to the time, because he just plays like this sickly dying man in the series. So it's, uh, it's a little bit weird, but uh, the the series is quite good. I highly recommend it. Um, Evil. What is evil? This is a, this is a show I've heard other people like suggest to me and I've heard, I've heard it kind of kicking about. Um, and I finally decided to like dive into it. Um, the way it kind of got described to me is sort of like X files, but like exorcists, uh, which is maybe not the most accurate way to describe it. Um, but, it's an accurate way to describe the plot, but maybe not the tone of the show. Um, the It's a show created by Michelle and Robert King um, to do shows like The Good Fight and, 
you know, stuff like that. So it has a very kind of like network TV feel to it. Uh, but it is basically about a small team of um, one guy's priest in training. Uh, the, the Our lead character, um, she's a uh, basically like a forensic psychologist. And she's basically brought in to be like, hey, be like the science on on the team to like counteract the you know the the religion and uh and then there's also another dude who basically handles like all the tech stuff and he like when they go in and like oh you know my my baby is like possessed because they're acting weird this way and he's like oh it's because the 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 drain in your dishwasher is doing this because it's built up with crap and it causes these toxins to go into the air and that's why your baby's acting weird you know that sort of thing so there so there's this team that basically go into like straight up like get called out on essentially like exorcisms and like hauntings and stuff like that and they're both coming at it from a spiritual and scientific approach to try to solve the situation and it's a show that like fully embraces that like this is a world where like evil and and god and satan and demons and witchcraft and all this stuff that we tell ourselves is just you know myth and legend and some people believe in it, it's all just it's all just freaking real and even you know, and it, it plays with that back and forth constantly. Um, and then there's also the character uh, played by uh, Michael Emerson, who you might remember from Lost and from uh, Person of Interest, who is basically like a foil for them. And at one point he says that he basically like sold his soul to the devil and now he's doing the devil's work on earth and he's basically like trying to destroy them and he's clearly having way too much fun in this show it is kind of like delightfully awful um and i i don't know i'm just kind of enjoying the hell out of the show it's a lot of fun it is horror but it is horror light um, because it's network TV. However, only the first season, there's, they're currently on their third season. Only the th- first season was on, I believe, CBS. Um, and then after that, it moved over to Paramount+. Plus. And so, like, right away, like, the first episode of season two, it's very clearly they had filmed it thinking they were going to be on network TV. And now that they're on Paramount+, Plus, they're, like, ADRing swear words into the show. <laughs> But also, it's like it goes along. Like I'm, I'm currently about um, most of the way through season two at this point. Uh, as it goes along, it feels like they're actually like ramping up the horror elements of the show too. It's getting darker and darker, and a little bit more explicit. And I think that's part of the freedom that probably comes as being on Paramount Plus instead of uh, instead of on CBS. So it's a uh, it's a really fun show. I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to get all the way through to the end of season three. I actually, I just looked it up and it has a really high rating. So I'm, I, I also might have to try to catch up with this one. It's three seasons is a little daunting, but it sounds fun enough that I think I could probably give it a go. It's the type of show that I would normally like repel against because I have this real problem with like TV horror 
because there's like horror that horror fans like, and I don't want to sound all gatekeepy about it or anything like, but like I have a certain kind of expectation from what I want from a horror movie. And typically the people who watch TV shows, especially network TV shows of what they consider horror is so kind of tame and watered down that it just does nothing for me as a horror fan. But for people who don't watch horror, it's great. And so that's usually the problem that I kind of have with, you know, it's definitely a problem I have with American Horror Story, you know, and stuff like that. But evil is fun enough and the characters are good enough and I'm liking the story enough that uh, I'm sticking with it. Well, and it sounds like the shift to Paramount Plus is certainly helping amping the, uh, the, the stakes too, right? Yeah, I th- I think so. It different. Like, we'll see how it gets when I get to season three because I think they'll be like. Clearly, they were like shooting season two already when they got told. By the way, you're you're going to a streaming service now. Uh, you're not canceled. You're just moving. But um, season three, they would have known exactly like what they could get away with and what they what they couldn't. So it'd be uh, interesting to see what it's like when we get there. But yeah, no, I'm digging it a lot. Awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about open range. Um, so this is, I, I first heard about this in passing. I, I never get sent stuff, but every once in a while I get on some mailing list and I get sent some sort of something. So when Emmy season, I guess, opened up, they Amazon sent out a bunch of press stuff for a couple of the shows that they were hoping would be Emmy contenders. And so I got this booklet on open rage. I had never heard of the show like ever hadn't heard anything about it. Hadn't seen anything about it. All of a sudden I get this pamphlet and I'm like, Oh, it's Josh Brolin. Oh, it's Imogen Poots. Maybe we should watch this. And that was like it. That was the only thing I thought about. I flipped through the book, and I'm like, oh, this looks cool. Maybe at some point we'll catch up with this. So once we finished watching everything during our COVID lockdown and we started watching some new stuff, we're like, well, let's try out a range. It's only eight episodes. It's not like a huge commitment. Let's see if this show is any good. And holy shit, is this show any good? So it stars Josh Brolin as this rancher who owns like a bunch of acreage of pasture land and they realize one day that they've lost two cows. How does this happen? Who knows? They go out. He goes out through his land to try to find these cows. And instead he finds this giant hole in one of his pastures that seems to be filled with something weird. So he puts his, hands, his arm in it and he brings it back out and it looks like oil, but it's not. So now this mystery begins to unravel about what is this giant hole? And the whole time you're thinking, How is it that you've never noticed this giant hole, this enormous hole in like some of your pasture land? Like seriously. And so stuff starts to go wrong with his sons, with his neighbor who is trying to claim like a chunk of his land. Then this woman shows up played by Imogen Poots, who is like this kind of hippie looking woman that's like, oh, can I stay on your land for a week? I'm a poet and I just need the place to crash for a little bit while I write some poetry. And Josh Brolin is like, well, okay, you can, you know, set up over there. So, you know, in some corner of some pasture somewhere and things just go from like bad to worse. (laughs) And the whole time you're like, what the fuck is happening? And then by the end of episode three, 
you're like, oh, so this is legitimately a sci-fi show slash Western where you really don't know what's happening. And it just, it gets progressively stranger through all of the episodes and they slowly start to give you hints about what exactly is happening. And then you get to the final episode of the show and you're like, they both answer a bunch of questions and they open up the door for a bunch of others and then it's over. And you're like, there better be a season two, goddammit, because I need to know exactly what is happening. So this is my hope at the moment. This show is looks amazing. Josh Brolin is fantastic. It co-stars, in addition to Imogen Poots, who is great, it also stars Louis Pullman, who is now apparently in everything, at right. Lily Taylor, Noah Reed, and Will Patton, who plays the grumpy neighbor. I don't even know what to say. Like this show was so unexpected. So not what I was anticipating. I don't even fully know what it is, but it's definitely really, really good. <laughs> really, really good. Highly, 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 highly recommended. I had someone else describing this, this show to me. And like, by the time they were done, I still was like no closer to understanding what the show was. No, I, I don't, I don't fully get it either. I mean, I think I understand. Like, I, I understand the basics. I don't. I want to keep it vague because the the way that the story unfolds and the way that the mystery unfolds, it's so uh, purposefully uh, parsed out. Like, the information is given to you at just the perfect time, and so as it starts to build towards like the final episode, and you kind of think that you know what's happening, and then it just ends. But it ends on in such a way that it, it could actually end there and we don't really need any more and it would be somewhat satisfying, but it left a lot of questions unanswered. And you I really just want to know what the hell is happening next. Like I, I need season two like yesterday. I wanted I kind of wish I waited till season two and just watched the whole thing back to back. It's that addicting. It's it's very, very good. Very, very good. Oh, I will have to dive into it then. And it's not like um and it's not like a horror movie. It's like a, not a horror show. There's nothing like scary about it. It's just a really intriguing mystery with this very clearly like a sci-fi the twist. Yeah. The the giant asshole. The giant asshole. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. I really liked it a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. And it has like the best soundtrack I've heard in a very long time. I'm like, where's this playlist on Spotify? I need to be listening to this shit all the time because it's a Western. So it's it's like mm. part Western, like classic Western music, a lot of Dolly Parton right off the get-go. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And then halfway through the show when Emily, Imogen Food shows up, it kind of changes a little bit. The Even the the score kind of has a slight change. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoy this movie, this series. Very, very good. Highly recommended. Amazon Pass Man, killing it, killing it with that one. Uh, Blood and Treasure, fully admit, I looked this up and I was like, what the hell is Ashley watching? I've never heard of it. No, no, not only had I never heard of it, I looked at the, like the poster and I'm like, what on earth is she watching? (laughs) I don't even know how the hell it was. I stumbled across this show. Um, they've just started season two. I think it's like, they're like six episodes into season two at this point. Again, just like evil. This was another show that was a network show, and then for a second season, it is now Paramount Plus. 
So it's another one of those where it's like they've moved it over. Um, this show, the best way to describe it is it's just a, it's a Indiana Jones adventure hunting for treasure show. Um, and probably a better way to describe it is it is everything that you were hoping the uncharted movie was. This show is uncharted better than the uncharted movie is. Um, and the entire premise is basically, uh, this guy who's federal agent teams up with a woman. He's had an on again, off again fling with, who is also a professional thief. And they, they're doing it to basically track down this guy who is like this, uh, international terrorist and warlord. And he's after this kind of like ancient treasure that he's going to be using for like some sort of like purpose in his plan. And so the easiest way to find and stop this guy is to beat him to the treasure. And they do it all through this, like the, the stories are all told through the premise of we need to stop this horrible person. And also ancient treasure gets mixed up into this sort of thing. So it sort of like bypasses the colonialism aspect of it, where they're not just like hunting treasure for fortune and glory sort of thing, you know, plundering various nations for artifacts that, you know, really should be stayed in those countries. It really is about just like returning this stuff to, you know, the rightful owners of where the, these treasures should be. But it's the through point of how we're going to stop the big bad guy. And it takes you into this whole kind of like also underground world of like black market dealings for these types of antiquities um, and, and dealing with like, you know, those sorts of like cutthroat elements. And in between you just get like a lot of action and adventure and treasure hunting. And it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying the show. I'm not going to say it's a great show. I'm not going to say this is the most important series that you're ever going to watch but we don't get a lot of these types of shows and it's a, um, I'm always down for some treasure hunting. It's a thing I love. I love Indiana Jones. It's, it's takes very few, you know, twists my rubber arm to watch something like this. And it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. It's fun, sexy, adventurous, everything you want. I love it. I love it. Um, I watched, I don't know if I should admit to this, not only did I watch the Resident Evil series on Netflix, I actually enjoyed Resident Evil on Netflix. And I know I'm in like the 0.1% of people that actually liked the show. <laughs> I couldn't Maybe believe it. less that than you know. It, I was legitimately shocked by the hate for the series once yeah, I started I to look. Too. I just, I, I can't, I still don't quite understand what the hate is. I think it may have something to do with the fact that it maybe falls outside of the the Resident Evil movie and ser- like video game umbrella. Like I don't know. Like I'm not familiar enough with it to know where whether it fits within the the historical whatever bullshit of the of the franchise. All I know is. It could have been called something else, and I still would have I like really enjoyed it. I think people are taking in their baggage of what a Resident Evil thing should be, 
and it hasn't helped the series clearly because I read this morning that Netflix canceled the series now. So I'm never going to get a a season two. I mean, it does, it's not without its problems. Like there is some stupidity with it, especially like there's a scene towards the end of the series of the, uh, of the series now where they have, you discover that they're, the ship is pulling like this giant, crocodile that's been infected with the virus and then they use it to basically kill like a whole shitload of zombies in the dumbest way and then to make things even worse there's somebody that can actually control it like what the fuck like it's not without its problems fully admit that said I really like this concept so the story follows uh, Lance Riddick and his two daughters who move to South Africa for, you know, to work for Umbrella Corporation. Like he works for Umbrella Corporation. So he moves the family into like a compound run by Umbrella. The daughters are having a hard time adjusting. They have their own issues. Then you start to discover that perhaps there's something going more going happening with dad. And then like the whole thing just goes sideways. And along the way, like this backstory is being told uh, kind of like in flashback, because you're also... Have you seen this? I, I, I'm talking, but I'm not actually sure if you've seen this or not. Yeah, I've seen about half of the first season. Okay. Okay, so it's, it's basically told in flashback, right? So you're kind of... You're living it in whatever is happening in the present, which, you know, the zombie apocalypse has happened and, like, all the world's gone to shit. And then you're learning about how we got there from these, the, these flashback c- series. I... I mean, admittedly, it's not the best thing I've ever seen. Might not even be my favorite Resident Evil thing I've seen. But I thought it was fine. Like, I rather enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed the banter between the sisters. I liked some of the action. I liked some of the storytelling. I really, really like the backstory aspect of it, like the flashbacks. I think the show probably would have been better if we if it had just been about how things got to shit and taking more time to develop that. But overall, I thought it was fine. I, I actually really liked it. So I, I was really dug the flashback. Sort yeah. Of, uh, the, the construction of like, okay, let's like, yes, let's, let's have a little bit of the past when they're younger, you know, to like before the shit happened. And then now let's like cut to like, after the shit has happened, we're following one of the sisters. And she's basically like making her, way across this like apocalyptic Mm -hmm. landscape and one of the things it did was it kept the show from ever feeling like it was stale or boring it kept moving as soon as one of those timelines felt like okay i'm getting a little tired of this it pop over to the other one it's like okay i'm into this now and you know it, it it kept the show moving kept it feel like you know feeling like it was dragging um because it's operating like two totally different tones and and you know, sort of style. So it was, uh, I thought it worked. Um, I actually, I do think this is the best Resident Evil adaptation we've gotten. Uh, I, I think it is really solid. I think it was fun. Like you say, not without its problems, but I've also been incredibly vocal. And I say that I think Resident Evil is kind of an impossible property to adapt. Um, whether or not you have any affinity for the the Paul W.S. Anderson movies with Mila Jovovich is probably going to depend on how much you agree with me. Um, Resident Evil, as 
people who say just do the video games and are fans of the video games, and I'm going to say this is someone who is a fan of the video games and has played every single one of them and loves them, the video games are stupid. As from a story level, they make no fucking sense. They're idiotic, and it plays like anime fan service almost, like the stupid shit that's in those games. And the only reason it works is because the actual gameplay itself is a lot of fun that you put up with the really fucking stupid storytelling that's in those games. They are so ridiculous. They're so campy, and they're so over the top, and it does not work in a passive experience that is a film or a series and you know this because the most accurate version to the games that we have gotten got came out a year ago with resident evil welcome to raccoon city and that movie is terrible it is an unwatchable mess it's this is just like the fate of Resident Evil. And this is what you get when you have something that is basically a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. You're taking, you're taking uh, George Romero's original dead films and you're adapting them through like six different layers to get to J horror and into video games and back out to film to essentially try to remake George Romero's dead films but with all this layer of like goofy crap and lore layered over top that it's never going to work. And this is the closest I've seen to it ever actually working. So much like you, this is my roundabout way of saying, I do not understand the hate for this show because the version of the show that some people seem to be demanding of resident evil is the most ridiculous, ridiculous goofy crap that no one ever wants to watch in your head i'm sure it sounds like it's great but on screen it is it is cringy okay we're all the same page i i just i still i'm just (laughs) my resident evil red yeah no i i'm totally there I, i i don't i legitimately don't fully understand what all the hate is about and when i started seeing like the half star reviews i'm like you know what i'm not even gonna bother with this because we're clearly never gonna agree on the show so why do i care so I, at some point i just go to the point i just don't care yeah put the blinders on and i'm just like yeah you don't clearly don't get it so I that's don't kind know of why people feel so strongly about it either no me either it's fucking resident it's a it's a bloody thing about zombies like it is what it is so i think it's i, I i'm a bit disappointed because i think if they called it something else and changed the umbrella name to something else it probably people probably would have been okay with that. Like they would mm-hmm. have appreciated it for what it is, even with the ridiculousness. And it probably would have gotten a season two like this. We don't get any more. It is what it is. The the haters are happy. The fans are like, ah, well, you know, we got one season out of it, I guess. Yep. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Like there's um, the movie that came out like uh, last year, or earlier this year, uh, night teeth, which is a vampire movie on, on, Netflix and I think I think we talked about it a while ago and it was a fun enjoyable movie that I liked and the one of the things I loved about it is it's basically just vampire the masquerade the movie but they didn't license vampire the masquerade they just made a freaking movie and if it had been like if they had gotten the IP it would have been so bogged down with baggage from 
like lore and garbage from the original IP that anyone who watched it would have hated it. But instead, because they're doing the serial numbers filed off version, it's like you can just enjoy it for what it is and they can take whatever licenses they want and leave all the rest behind. And I agree with you. If you tried to make Resident Evil and just didn't call it Resident Evil and made like a fun Resident Evil inspired movie, you'd probably be a hundred times more successful and a hundred times more appreciated by the audience that wouldn't like get bogged down in this bullshit than if you have to like adhere to the really goofy lore that's in those games. Oh, would we agree it's a thing of beauty? It really is. <laughs> Let's see if we continue the agreement train with She-Hulk. Yes. So <laughs> She-Hulk is a property that I'm just going to say has a very special place in my heart. It was always one of my favorite comics. Um, I grew up loving the Bill Bixby Hulk show. And then when I gravitated towards comic She-Hulk, which is like one of the first comics I gravitated to towards. And I've always loved her. You know, when, when people have like their comic book character, superhero character, that's their character, mine is She-Hulk. If this were, weren't an audio medium, you would see that I have like a $300 sideshow collectible She-Hulk statue that's on the shelf behind me. So She-Hulk is very much my jam and always also a little bit of an underdog character because like she always has these short run comics that end up getting canceled. And even though she's like still sticks around, it's important to the Marvel universe. It's like, it always feels like there's just like this small core collection of, of fans of hers. And for the most part, she just gets like pushed off to the sidelines. So, I was just excited that we were getting a She-Hulk show at all. It's like my dream come true. Never thought it would happen. And it's here. Um, and so I've tried to keep my expectations reasonable. My expectations have been just, does it exist? Can I watch it? Then I'm happy. But beyond that, because obviously that's been met, beyond that, it is kind of a st- astonishing at how close to the comics they absolutely nailed She-Hulk. They nailed the tone, they nailed the comedy, they nailed all the little quirks of like introducing like fourth wall breaks and everything. They are they're doing the comics through and through. If you ever read a She-Hulk comic and and have liked the comics, this is exactly what the comics are. And I think they've absolutely nailed it. I think Tatiana Maslany is amazing as Jen Walters. I love her so much. It's kind of I I didn't know how much I was gonna love like seeing her like in shell in in you know shelky mode, but her her vocalization of it, even though it's like you know fully animated when she's She Hulk, but her vocalization of it it fits so well. It's like exactly what I hear in my head when I think of She-Hulk already. It's like, it's amazing. I love everything about this show. My only complaint so far is the episodes are too short. Uh, I'm, that was my, that's what I was going to say. The thing that struck me the most was I, I was enjoying, I've enjoyed it so much that I'm like, oh, it's over already. It just has this like level of, um, I don't know. It's just so joyous. It's there's mm-hmm. just so much fun in the episodes and then the uh, the characterization. I'm I'm really really liking it. I think so far this might be my favorite of the of the Marvel series. 
it's just I don't know something about it just and um, a lot of it is Maslani who I have like a super crush on yeah. <laughs> unabashed so uh yeah the 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 love train continues because I am also a big fan of the show and I do not have the history with it I was kind of like oh am I how am I gonna feel with this show that's like part uh you know drama and part you know, superhero show with like literally an entire character that's entirely CG. Is this going to work? And it's, it's nice to see that it does work and it works really, really well. Yeah. No, as, as someone who, who has absolutely loved all of the comics for She-Hulk and read them several times, there's nothing more I could want from this show. It it hits all the buttons. It completely fulfills. No notes. I'm I'm over the moon that we even have this. So it's a I'm, winner. I'm, I love I'm it. I'm very excited. I love it. I love. It. I'm curious to see, and I hope that this doesn't affect anything. But when I started to see grumblings about, because um, there was a bit of a, uh, I know th- a, there was something about the VFX teams. Somebody had made some comment about, and I mean this is not new, but there has mm-hmm. long been uh, some discussion about Marvel and Disney and how they have kind of cornered the market on animation and visual effects and uh, the bidding wars that they generate for the work that needs to be done to make these movies and film and and series a reality and how a lot of the times, you know, the, the houses are underbidding the underbidding themselves to the point where, you know, the artists are working unpaid overtime to try to get these things out. And the only thing that they're getting paid with is whatever their meager salary is. And the fact that they got to work on whatever, you know, marquee title it is. And that's really not a way for a, a business to operate. And so there was a bit of an outcry, uh, I, I think the timing was just bad because it's been a long brewing issue, but the outcry sort of came out as She-Hulk was about to premiere. Um, and there was some uh, disgruntled employees uh, that complained. I think it started with the Reddit post, if I'm not mistaken, about the uh, overtime that was uh, needed in order to make uh, the, the series of reality. And then the stars chimed in and are like, yeah, unionize. And now I'm like, How's Disney going to react? How are Disney and Marvel going to react to the fact that their uh, their actors are now <laughs> saying visualize the VFX houses, which is just going to be your shows are going to cost more to make? I, I hope there's not fallout from this. I, I cringed badly when I saw this starting to unravel. I'm like, I hope that this, this doesn't come back to bite anybody in the ass. Uh, I think they will be fine. I think this is... I think this is an issue that gets misspoken about a lot and it kind of irritates me. I've gotten a few kind of like fights online with, uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions who have absolutely no idea how the VFX Mm -hmm. industry actually works. Um, And I don't think it's been, this issue has been really represented properly in the media as it's cropped up because it always gets presented as a, Marvel or Disney problem. And the only reason it gets represented that way is because a, they're the biggest kid on the block right now. Um, They're definitely producing like the most amount of content with the most amount of effects. So obviously they, they have a huge amount of weight, but also they have a high profile. And if you 
just make an article about the VFX industry. Everyone's going to ignore it. If you make an article about this is what Marvel is doing, then all of a sudden people are going to read it. It's going to, you know, you're going to get attention. Um, And I think it's very erroneous because this is not a situation like, let's say Disney went away tomorrow. It does not solve the problem in the VFX industry. No, these problems have been going on for decades, been going on since before Marvel was making movies. Um, One of the most high profile moments you'll remember is uh, the company VFX company Rhythm and Hughes that won the Oscar for Life of Pi and then like a month later had to declare bankruptcy because yeah. their overhead was so or their 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 profit margin was so low yeah. for the VFX industry. And it served as like a little bit of I wanna say a wake up call as to the problems in the VFX industry, except for the fact that everyone immediately went to sleep right after. And yeah. nothing has changed. We're no. still in a situation where the the modus operandi is that houses, even though they will regularly studios will work with the same houses over and over and over again, it's still a bidding function where people will try to underbid everyone else to to get the job, which means their profit margins end up being ridiculously small, especially for this type of work. And then out of that budget, they're contracting independent contractors to come in and do that labor. And the shit rolls downhill and those people don't get paid enough, especially for the hours they're expected to put, put in. And it becomes like, it becomes like game dev work where all of a sudden you're crunching, to get stuff done. And this is only compounded as across the board, not just Marvel. Everything is doing a hundred times more VFX work than ever before. The amount of VFX work that gets done just gets more and more and more every year. We've got more productions with all the streaming services in place. And, it's overloaded. There's more work than the studios can even handle. They're max capacity right now and begging for to to have more sources to do this VFX work. And no one in it is making any money. And so it's it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and I do believe that the answer is unionization. Um, of the people I've talked to who are in VFX, they say that like the biggest problem is it's such a fragmented industry and filled with so many tech bros, like in terms of like a attitude, um, that they it's it's hard to kind of like amass the kind of uh, general consensus that you would need to you know basically form a union inside that sort of industry that that attitude was at its height after the rhythm and hues thing and there's a lot of people did sign union cards but they weren't actually able to successfully bring in a union and it's probably even more difficult now so maybe you know i i hope that tide will take uh, will change because ultimately even though i think it would make productions cost a lot more um i would kind of rather people get paid fairly for their work and not you know, for the entire industry to not just like spiral down into this black hole of abuse, which is what the VFX industry is as a whole. And again, I'm going to stress this, even though I have people say, you know, complain and say that I'm being a corporate apologist when I say this, but I'm not. This is entirely from a labor perspective. This is not just a Marvel problem. This is the entirety of the industry problem 
every studio and every production operates in the same manner that Marvel is currently operating. So if just getting Marvel to act in a different manner with how they deal with VFX houses means everyone else is still going to be acting in that same manner and the problem is going to persist. It does not fix the problem. No, you're right. Yeah, you're totally right. And I, you're, you're, you've absolutely nailed it. Like the fact is that when you have this discussion and you don't mention Marvel and Disney or really any of the studios, everybody kind of like looks at it and it's like, ah, whatever. But as soon as you attach one of the names to it, then people pay attention, which is why it keeps coming up. And I mean, the simple fact is that Disney and Marvel do have a lot of weight. They own a lot of properties. Mm-hmm. They produce a lot of content, but they, you're right. They are not the only ones. Um, I, I personally think that if Marvel and Disney were to make a change, it would probably lead to a, 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 a tie, a changing tide in the industry because they are some of the biggest players, but yeah, they're not alone. I agree. That could do it, but I think that's probably a harder sell. That's like asking capitalism to not be capitalistic. Um, I think that's a harder sell than it is to actually succeed in unionizing the houses. Yeah. Because that would force all of the studio's hands rather than asking the biggest kid on the block to operate at a competitive disadvantage for a moral good. Yeah. Yeah. No. I don't see that happening. No, I don't either. Like, I think it's going to be the other way. I think that in the end, the big guys are going to be forced to play by the rules because yeah. everybody like that. There's no other choice. Like the changes have happened and they have to play by those rules now. And it's not like it'd be some giant hardship because the entirety of every other aspect of Marvel's productions are unionized. The only aspect that isn't is VFX. And as a result, one of the things, you know, because of where VFX as a technology is at this point in our industry, it makes it so that other aspects of film production can be easily shunted off onto VFX, burdening their workload even more because it ends up at the end of the day on a line sheet being cheaper to get non-union VFX artists to solve it than to get union artisans on set to solve it. Yeah. That's a problem. And I think ultimately results in, in, in not as good work being done. Agreed. That was a a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) But I think a necessary one. I think it's a necessary conversation that not enough people are having. Agreed. I fully agree. Um, I wanted to finish with two shows um, on Netflix that I just recently caught up on. Um, The first is Keep Breathing, which is, I'm still not 100% sure how this got made. Not that it's bad or anything. It's just such an a weird little like capsule of a series. So it's a limited series, six episodes, 30 minutes an episode. It's um, uh, created by a couple of Canadian uh, producers, uh, Martin Giro and Brendan Gow. And it stars uh, Melissa Barrera as um, a lawyer who uh, is making her way up to BC's interior to deal with the family issue and her flight's gotten canceled. And as she's at the airport waiting, like trying to find some way to get up there, she overhears these two guys talking about 
um, like flying some cargo to the same place where she's supposed to be going. I'm avoiding the name of the place because I honestly can't remember what it is. I, I want to say it was Clearwater, but I can't remember for certain. But it's this backhole town in the middle of BC, basically, in the outback somewhere. So she convinces these guys to let her get on this plane. Somewhere along the flight, there's an accident. And all of a sudden, the remainder of the series is this woman in the BC outback, dealing with the elements, trying to survive. So it's a survival story that unfolds in in, in basically six episodes. Um, and it, it it involves a couple of like flashbacks, and along the way you find out more about Liv and her life and what she's doing and how this is more than just like a, a survival story. It's also like a self-discovery story. It's very good. It's I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. The actress that plays Liv is fantastic. It's but it's just like this little like anomaly of a series. Like it's just the weirdest little thing I I never imagined to see on Netflix. And I'm sure now I'm like, what other kind of like random things are hiding in the catalog that I've never seen? Because <laughs> I was really impressed by this one. I thought it was pretty 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 awesome. And I have no idea if it's available outside of Netflix Canada. It might just be like this Canadian thing, but. It was good. I really liked that. I would recommend this to anybody. It's a, and I it's not a huge. It is because all of the original stuff they do, it seems like it's available everywhere. Yeah, and there's, it's, there's no reason it wouldn't be unless there was like some sort of like you know cross-platform deal or something like that. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend it. It's very low time con- like time investment because the episodes turn out to be like 22 or 25 minutes each, um, and it's a really solid story. Uh, so yeah, one time. I'm always down for a good survival story. It is a pretty decent survival story. I, I I give it a thumbs up. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on that I was suckered into, and I say suckered because how many movies about Woodstock '99 do you really have to see? I mean, we lived through it, even though I wasn't there. But we lived through it. I've already seen a documentary about it. And now I watched a three-part documentary about it. Like, did I really need to watch the three-part documentary about it? No. It, but was it like fascinating? It's like Fest thing all over again. It totally, it's, competing docs. It totally is. Um, I will say this. So it's called Trainwreck Woodstock 99. Um, the thing I'll say about this one is because it is basically like a three-and-a-half-hour documentary on the train wreck that was, was Woodstock 99, it does get more into like the nitty gritty of what went wrong beyond just Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst are idiots. <laughs> uh, so there is a little bit more um, uh, nuance to, you know, trying to figure out how exactly things got so far out of control. Um, the other thing I really appreciated, and it, it could be any number of reasons, but they also had a variety of interviews that kind of provided a different um, cause the both documentaries end up at the same, like at the same, uh, resolution, which is Woodstock 99 was a shit show because it was really badly managed. And the guy, the organizers basically took for granted and were completely out of touch with the culture and literally were just in it for the money. Like this, mm-hmm. this is the bottom line at both documentaries. What I thought was, and they're both good in their own way. I particularly, I, personally liked Trainwreck a little bit more because it's a little bit longer. So it has an opportunity to kind of dig more into certain aspects that were uh, kind of like 
not as important in the HBO documentary because they didn't have the time to like look at everything in great detail. So this one does take its time to look a little bit more at, you know, what failed on the ground during the event, what failed before the event and the failures that came after. And then it does something really interesting where they actually talk to people that were there, both men and women. And it's kind of fascinating to hear them talk about, you know, Woodstock after the fact, even knowing and having lived through what happened. And they're still kind of like, but you know what? I would do it again if I had a chance to do it again. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But um, yeah, I found this one just a little bit more nuanced. So if you're at all like curious about, Woodstock 99, if you have any interest in it whatsoever, I would say this one is worth your time as well as the HBO doc because it does have um, just some additional interviews and additional information Mm -hmm. that just kind of like rounds out the story a little bit more. But yeah, the basics are still the same. The organizers are just a bunch of shitty old white dudes that just wanted to make money and then got fucked because they didn't know what the hell they were doing. I've been on the fence because I really like the HBO doc, but also felt incredibly satisfied by it. Mm-hmm. And when I saw Netflix came out with their own and it's longer, it's like, I don't know that I need that. You don't. You really don't. Because the, 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 final, the final message is the same. <laughs> and I also don't know if I'm interested for more, but I also kind of am. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Maybe... Maybe I'll put it on, you know, so many other things to watch, though. Uh, one of the thing I thought was interesting here is they also talked to some of the, the musical acts that performed and kind of their take on what was going on. So they talked to uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Davis of Korn, and I think Moby makes an appearance, and they talked to Jewel. And so you kind of get some, like, insider from the folks that were, like, the performers and how they were mm. mentally going through what was happening. and. It's just kind of interesting to see the the performer perspective of that. And then like at one point, Moby's like, Jesus, I knew things were going to go bad. And oh, there was, um, oh, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It just has like a different I, sort of level. I seem of to remember the HBO doc interviewed some performers as well, but it sounds yeah. like this one got like basically like, okay, the ones that that doc didn't get, let's, let's go here. Yeah. It, it was quite a bit of that, but I, you know, like I say, the HBO one is great and it condenses everything into like a good, I think it's like 90 minutes. This one is just like a lot of the same material, but from a different angle and with different people participating. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, I don't know if you're into it. I, I really enjoyed it. Okay, cool. And that's it. I have nothing else. I, okay. I mean, I do, but there, let's not talk there about was, it There was one other show that was not oh. on my list I want to touch on real quick, because I, I would be really remiss. I don't think we talked about this before, and this show absolutely has to be mentioned. Um, and this is the, the Hulu show, The Bear. Oh, which, which I, I just know. started. Okay. The Bear I've literally is- watched one episode. <laughs> The Bear is one of the most incredible shows I've seen all year. It is absolutely amazing. Um, if you're concerned about, like, ah, too many TV shows, this one's a really easy buy-in. It's nine episodes. They're half-hour episodes. So it's, like, four and a half hours of TV. It's, like, not it's not that bad overall. Um, but the show is also 
absolutely brilliant. We were talking about, uh, we started off at the show talking about Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems. And this show is kind of like matches that anxiety level of Uncut Gems uh, inside the kitchen of a small family run restaurant. The premise is entirely that um, our main character is a guy who kind of uh, came out of like, like really, really upscale, high end uh, New York restaurant scene as a chef and kind of flamed out there and has taken over the restaurant that uh, back in Chicago that has been abandoned by the uh, suicide of his brother. And, um, and he's determined to basically come in and save the business and turn it around and fix it. And to do so, he's sort of bringing his, uh, his very fish out of water, high binded. This is how you run a restaurant for high end clientele sort of attitude. The show is incredibly chaotic, is constantly in crisis. The All the scenes in the kitchen are just, like, so anxiety-inducing. It is kind of amazing. But the other thing that happens is, like, there there's this entire language in the show where it's, like, it, a, a level of respect that gets dictated that everyone in the kitchen must receive. Everyone is called chef. Someone says something, you say, yes, chef. Someone says something, you know, to, to you to get your attention, you say, heard, chef. And after you watch this show for a while, you will go around and you will be calling people chef because it's, it's so addictive. And it's like you want to be in on it. And it is so fun. But just like as a drama, the show is so good, is so tight. It is so perfect. It is like such a fresh breath of air. I've never seen a show like this before. It is absolutely astonishing. One of the best things I've seen all year. Yeah, I, I ra- we randomly started watching it the other day because I'd heard so many good things about it. So we watched the first episode. Love it. But then I love I love Hell's Kitchen. I really do. I really love that show. The restaurant itself sucks. Full yeah. warning to anybody that ever goes to Vegas and is a big fan of that show. And they're like, I'm going to go to eat at Hell's Kitchen. Biggest disappointment of my life. The worst $300 I've ever spent on a meal ever. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't be fooled. It is not the same. That said, okay, sidetrack. Yeah, the first episode of that show is so, so great. And I love how I think it's towards the end of episode one. The guy, I still don't know any of the character names. The guy that makes the bread mm-hmm. is like, yes, chef. And I was like, okay, this is already changing. This is fantastic. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Really looking forward to watching the rest of this. Yeah, I absolutely adored it. Uh, I haven't heard anyone not rave about this show. The only person I heard complain about the show is someone who basically looked like it just gave them PTSD from their time of working in a kitchen. Like, I can't deal with this. This is too much. It's too real. This is too on the nose. No, no. That that's that's the worst I've heard about this show. But so that's a good side as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Absolutely. Hop on the bear. It is a a great show. Awesome. Um, That's it. We, that, that over the last two weeks, we've given you a lot of stuff that you can watch and that you should be watching most of it. And you must have watched all of this by the time we come back. That's right. That's the key here. 
Got to catch. That means I have a lot of work to do because I need to watch some of the stuff that you've come up with that I still haven't caught up with. (laughs) We'll see if I can make the time. Uh, But come on by atcpod.ca to see the full list. Uh, Be sure to follow us on the Twitters. Ms. Ashley, where can folks find you? People can find me in the Twitterverse at Ashley Lynch or, you know, hanging out behind the local dumpster just spewing hot takes. <laughs> and you can find me at the marina logging in once a day to post my uh, framed response because that's about the uh, the only thing I have time for at this point in my life. Uh, but hopefully that will change. And if you at me, I will probably respond. Can't say for sure, but you know, if it's a good take, I might I might spew some words. Um, and we'll be back uh, with another show very very soon. So until next time. Insert catchphrase here. Opening and closing credits are Happy Alley by composer Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit incompetech.com.